1: Hello and welcome back to New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we'll be talking with Nathan Finney and Brian Lasley about the new book, Redefining the Modern Military, The Intersection of Profession and Ethics. Nate Finney co-edited the book with Tyro Mayfield, and Dr. Brian Lasley is a contributor to a chapter discussing the Air Force. Nate and Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Happy to be here.
1: Nate, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. I'm a U.S. Army officer uh, currently serving out in the great state of Hawaii. Um, Also have uh, been lucky enough uh, to take part in a a couple of great nonprofit organizations like Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, Military Writers Guild,
0: uh, and most especially the Strategy Bridge.
1: And Brian, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Uh, Certainly. A former Air Force officer who got out uh, to take the academic slash grad school route. Uh, Currently a historian working for the Air Force. Uh, But in my spare time, I also write about the Air Force and air power in general.
1: And could you tell us how this book came about?
2: Sure. So um, a couple of years ago... um, we were, so as a, a founder of the Strategy Bridge, which is an online forum that discusses strategy and military affairs, um, we were discussing uh, with folks on Twitter about kind of ethics in the profession, and Dr. Pauline uh, Shanks-Karin, who's currently uh, Stockdale Chair Professor at the Naval War College, um, had tweeted out a comment um, prepping for a military ethics course, um, a question about uh, military ethics and in the process of that conversation, uh, including uh, quite a robust conversation between uh, my co-editor, Ty Mayfield and Pauline. Um, They determined that there was a a lot of interest in the community, profession and ethics. Um, And so we reached out to her separately and and asked her if she'd be interested in writing an article or helping write uh, or support a series of articles on the profession and ethics. Um, and that turned into uh, a series on the strategy uh, on profession and ethics and that intercession, um, that turned out to be over a dozen articles. Um, and they were really high quality articles, um, that, that generate a lot of conversation within the community. So Ty and I decided, you know, it might be, uh, worth developing this conversation further, expanding those arguments, uh, into a, a full length, uh, edited volume, um, and so we reached out to some of the, the folks who were uh, provided the best articles, and, and uh, about ten of them uh, agreed to write articles um, or chapters for this book. Um, in the process of doing that, we realized there were a couple of gaps we didn't have in the series, including uh, uh, on kind of some of the coalition aspects as well as uh, the Air Force, uh, and that's where uh, one of the the chapter authors here here on the interview, uh, Brian Lizey, came in. We've known Brian from Twitter as well, and. So we reached out to him to very quickly put together a chapter focused on the Air Force. Um, and then through that process, um, we worked with uh, First University of Oklahoma Press and ultimately with USNI Press, um, the great editors and, and team there, uh, to put this book together.
1: The book stands on the shoulders of previous examinations of the military and the military profession. Why is it important to re-examine professionalism and ethics now?
2: Right. Well, history... Kind of tells us that periods of conflict are followed by introspection and self-assessment by professional militaries. Um, so for all the folks who wrote into this but particularly uh, Ty and myself, believe that we're currently in the time uh, when professional militaries must again tend to this profession uh, as we have had, you know, over a decade and a half of conflict. Um, and as the character of conflict is ever changing and the words that we, the works that we have to guide us through these changes are are kind of showing to begin, uh, beginning to show their age. So works like, uh, Sam Huntington's soldier of the state in 1957, um, uh, Morris Janowitz's book, the professional soldier, uh, in, uh, 1960 and others. Um, we're developed coming out of the Korean War, um, Smorland's, uh study uh, coming out of the Vietnam War. We've always, uh, we seem to, coming out of particularly long conflicts, look back and done very robust study on what it, what those conflicts meant for the professional military as well as it means for the profession as a whole. And while we've had some books in the recent past. Most especially works by like Dr. Don Snyder in 2002, and some some work by General Dempsey, uh, who was kind enough to to write the foreword to this book, did in the in the early 2000s. Um, they are starting to show their age, and they're they're missing some of the aspects that we have uh, seen in the character of warfare and the 21st century profession that we've seen in about the last two decades. Um, so we just thought it would be good to capture some of those thoughts as a foundation going forward on where we might look at the profession as we go into the 21st century.
1: And how have changes in recent conflicts shifted how we view the military as a profession?
2: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So um, the first kind of thing that comes to mind are uh, the new aspects of of warfare, things like uh, AI systems uh, higher technology, uh, machine learning, uh, autonomous systems, things like UAVs and underwater vehicles, are certainly affecting how we view ourselves as professionals, how, as professionals, we're using the technology uh, in the conduct of work. Um, so, those things certainly need to be taken into account. I think uh, some of the chapters. Um, in this book, start to get us there. We don't go real deep into things like AI and machine learning, but what we do look at is the role of professionals and how they question the military, how they question decisions that are made, uh, and things like the, the chapters by uh, Pauline Shanks Kern, who kind of kicked off this project, um, and uh, Dr. Becky Johnson, currently at the uh, Marine Corps War College, uh, really kind of set that foundation of what a profession is as we go into the 21st century.
1: So does the increased technical nature of war change how we define professionalism in the context of the military?
2: I think it certainly adds a new kind of aspect that has to be taken into account. Um, I think fundamentally war is is a human endeavor conducted by humans on the part of humans in order to have some sort of human effect. But certainly as we employ these new technologies, we integrate them both on the battlefield more as well as with our soldiers, sailors, airmen more. Um, It certainly has to be taken into account. I think um, all the services are affected by this, um, but I think probably, you know, the Navy and especially the Air Force uh, in particular. So I'd be interested to kick that over to Brian and uh, see what he has to
0: say. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the title of the book is The Intersection of the Profession and Ethics, Uh, But with what we've been discussing for the last several minutes here, it could be just as easily uh, the intersection of technology and the human element. Uh, And when we talk about advanced technological systems or AI or swarm or UAV or what have you, uh, I think with regard to the to the profession side of it, it's how do how do. Officers in, say, the U.S. Navy and U.S. Air Force interact with this new technology, uh, and how does the human element kind of blend into that?
1: And you mentioned officers. How do the questions and the the issues examined in the book regarding professionalism vary based on rank? And how does professionalism and ethics factor into? military as a career versus um, the, the different levels that people are coming into the military at.
2: Right. And and the foundational documents that are written coming out of the Korean War. Uh, Huntington and Jenowitz in particular really focused mainly on officers as professionals. So the main elements of the profession were officers. I think as the military has become more and more professional and more and more technical and become much more of a career versus a, a conscript uh, military, uh, that profession has expanded to non-commissioned officers in particular, uh, but even just uh, soldiers just coming into the military. Uh, there certainly is a education journeyman piece for uh, soldiers coming in their first couple of years, but the same applies, uh, in my opinion, to, to officers as well, their first couple of years i view them more as kind of the journeymen than, than uh, on their way to being a professional and the professionals. Uh, most people uh, interested in the military and focused on uh, uh, educating and analyzing the military would say that there is a real flip kind of at the mid-grade um, when you have your officers becoming, you know, going from captains or major, uh, captains to majors about that time frame or um, soldiers becoming non-commissioned officers. So pending on sergeant and above where those individuals are essentially making a career choice, saying, I'm going to be a career military person, and then they tend to become more invested in the profession, more focused on how they can be professional and they can impact the profession. I think it was Don Snyder in his books uh, and his lectures, he focuses on that transition going from kind of being a consumer of the profession to being a steward of the profession. Uh, So focusing on how not only, you know, to be a professional, but how do you develop professionals?
0: Um, What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I think uh, kind of there's two parts to this from my own perspective uh, with regard to the Air Force. The Air Force is a little odd. Uh, in that, by and large, not in its entirety, but by and large, when we talk about sending uh, you know, the professional soldier into combat, uh, in the Air Force, it has traditionally been the officers that go forward into combat, uh, be that the, the fighter pilot, the bomber pilot, uh, even the UAV pilot. A lot of discussion about whether or not that should uh, translate over into uh, enlisted pilots. Uh, And again, I I say that I I don't want to take anything away from, you know, combat controllers or pararescue men uh, that are uh, largely enlisted career fields. Uh, But by and large, the Air Force has often sent the officers forward into combat. I think the second piece to that, uh, with regard to the idea of professionalism writ large, uh, and Nate talked about how it's kind of at the mid-grade level that you decide uh, this is something that I'm going to take on and go forward with. Uh, that I am going to be the full time, make a career out of it, officer. Uh, but I think professionalism is something that develops, and it is a lifelong journey. It's at no point, I think, uh, that you go, you know what, I am a professional. I have I have reached the pinnacle. I am a professional military officer. I think at a certain point, you know, probably in those junior grades. Uh, you start reading those texts, you start reading uh, Samuel Huntington, uh, you know, in, in, and as, as a historian, you read Russell Widely. And then it just kind of develops over time, both in your own kind of your personal reading uh, and then in your your professional reading, be that at the uh, captain level officer's course, the Air Command and Staff College uh, and on into the Air War College. And, of course, all services have their command and staff and war college. Uh, but I think it's something that just continues to develop over time.
2: And you both yeah, touched absolutely. on
0: I think it's. Sorry,
2: sorry to interrupt. But I think it's absolutely, absolutely a journey that, that continues from the from the moment you decide you're going to enlist or join the military all the way to, and I, I would say, through uh, retirement.
1: You both touched on the issue of education. What's the current state of education in the military and what do you think is needed?
0: You know, I said I was going to let Nate talk each time, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and jump in on this one because it, it kind of uh, bears with my chapter uh, in that when they were putting the book together, uh, and they gave me a call and asked me if I would be interested in in writing said chapter on the U S air force. I was actually at the air command and staff college at the time, uh, taking the course as a student. Uh, And so when they, uh, called me and said, Hey, do you have any interest in saying anything about the air force? Uh, oh yeah, I've got, I've got lots of interest in saying what I think. Uh, and I think it is it is both good and bad. Uh, it is an evolving process. Uh, and I think, again, something the Air Force has struggled with, and that when you have such a, a small portion, say 20% are rated officers and 80% are are more in your support career fields, uh, but at the Air Command and Staff Colleging, focusing largely on that operational piece, how well, how much does that, apply to your support career fields. Uh, I think they've done a great job, and I can only speak for the courses I've taken down there, they've done a great job uh, at bringing the history uh, the profession, the war fighting, uh, and they're continuing to develop it each day. Uh, and I've often said, with regard to this chapter, I felt kind of bad because uh, when I wrote it, I wrote it over the course of a weekend. Uh, and at the beginning, it was very much, a, oh, and another thing I've got to say here. Uh, and I hope it, it turned out to be a bit more balanced on the education piece. Over to you, Nate. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So I I think uh, much of what Brian said is true, uh, writ large across the services. Uh, I know that uh, Secretary Mattis um, put a dedicated effort in his national defense strategy and, and other strategic documents that he's put out there is trying to try and put. An emphasis on the developing of uh, individuals and the developing of units through education within the military. Um, in a more kind of historical um, uh, thread, we've actually got two really good chapters in this book uh, that touch on the education piece. So uh, Chapter 7 by William Be- uh, Will Beasley looks at the Navy across time and how uh, education and, and senior leadership's focus on education um, really impacted the Navy across time uh, and how important it was that they, they focus on uh, educating uh, their leaders. Uh, and then actually the, the next chapter, Chapter 8, is by Simon Englund over in uh, the U.K., Uh, who is focused exclusively on the professional military education and really kind of looks at it in a historical context and then kind of where it fits today. Um, And I think both of them would If you read both these chapters and both of the authors would say that um, across time, the military's focus on education, um, and this may be somewhat uh, service specific as well, uh, kind of waxes and rains. There are times when we put a lot of emphasis into educating officers, uh, preparing them both for their duties today, as well as projecting into the future what we would need our leaders uh, to know and do. Um, And there have been times where that has been pulled back Um, in my own career that was Somewhat pulled back uh, during the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, there was still education still going on. The Army, in particular, uh, put a focus on putting all mid grade uh, captains and all mid grade leaders, uh, including NCOs, uh, through that education process. Um, but because of the wars, uh, there were a lot of waivers. A lot of people either went much later than they probably would have otherwise, uh, or able to get out of it altogether. Um, and so. Operational necessity sometimes overcomes uh, those, those desires to educate our folks, and other times, uh, maybe when we're between wars, um, at a time when books like this are most useful when we're, we're kind of reflecting on past wars and look forward to future wars, um, that education is probably the most important and when militaries tend to, to put their most focus on them.
0: And I think this is also a fabulous time to point out how the chapters, though each written kind of separately, I mean, we didn't sit around a table and, and discuss how they would all fit together. Uh, in fact, I had not seen them uh, until the proof started to come together. But I think it's a fabulous time to point out how well the chapters fit together. And Nate brings up Simon's chapter, and I'm just sitting here looking at it right now and how he talks about uh, professional militaries, how they're much more specialized now, uh, that they rely much more on technology to combat. Compensate for relatively smaller size. uh, And so that, you know, these chapters really do go together. So we spent so much time talking about technology, how that impacts uh, the future of our armed forces or any armed forces. um, And it's interesting to see how, you know, Simon ties into that as well.
1: I wanted to talk to you about chapter four, which has a great title professionals know when to break the rules. And, um, in, the, in a discussion of professionalism, there's an interesting line in here where it says, soldiers become professionals when they can make the best available decision, even when it contradicts the textbook answer, whether that textbook is a field manual, regulation, or strategy. Um, can you talk a little bit about this chapter and um, what it means as a professional to use judgment and to sometimes break the rules?
2: Absolutely, so that Mike Denny uh, wrote that chapter and it was um, based on uh, one of the articles he wrote for the Strategy Bridge originally Uh, and and his was certainly one of the articles we wanted uh, most for him to to build out into a chapter Um, and part of that is because of how kind of productive provocative and thought-provoking it is. Uh, even. I think it was yesterday um, somebody tweeted out um, a comment about that chapter uh, and it started again a, a kind of secondary conversation uh about the idea of whether professionals should be breaking the rules whether it is their duty to break the rules and so mike's uh thesis for his chapter is that a true professional uh is educated enough and experienced enough That he or she knows when uh, bending or breaking the rules in order to accomplish the mission and meet a higher goal is more important than following a specific order, a specific regulation or a a specific strategy. Um, And I think... Um, Those of us who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan can probably most relate with Mike's chapter. Um, There were certainly times, uh, I think, when most of us uh, got some sort of direction um, or overall theory of how to do things, Uh, but once we got on the ground and and saw the lay of the land and understood better than anybody what was going on, uh, we felt like we had to to bend or, or break things a little bit in order to meet the mission. Now, I think what most people get hemmed up on on Mike's chapter is um, they jump immediately to doing something unethical. So um, this book is all about the intersection of profession and ethics. And I think Mike would say, you know, you're not doing anything unethical to meet the mission. But maybe you're going against regulation or going against an order to do it. Um, so I think that piece you mentioned of judgment is is key at what Mike was getting at, at that chapter. And honestly, what a lot of these chapters touch on is that intersection of profession and ethics is ultimately the judgment, the judgment that we expect and that we educate and experience and, and give experiences to our officers and and. and enlisted leaders uh, to be able to make that judgment call that maybe may go against regulation or uh, the the normal way of doing things in order to accomplish the mission.
0: And uh, I remember when I first read Mike's chapter, it blew me away uh, because here he is talking about you know, when is the right time to possibly uh, cross that line and kind of to echo what Nate says. Obviously, you know, as long as it is not, you know, illegal, immoral, unethical, or fat free, you know, you're going to follow along with it. Uh, But one thing I found in how Mike's chapter kind of tied into mine, uh, and this again goes back to something that happened on uh, social media on Twitter yesterday, uh, is I spend a little bit of time in my chapter uh, talking about uh, Colonel Billy Mitchell and how I felt that he was someone though upheld by the Air Force as an icon, uh, someone that crossed over that line uh, from what I believe is is doing the right thing uh, to outright insubordination. Uh, and so yesterday was the uh, anniversary of the beginning of Billy Mitchell's court martial trial, uh, and I had people coming back to me said, "No, he was right. You know, he fought for air power," and I said, "No, what he said." The statement that got him in trouble was uh, absolutely wrong. He crossed over from fighting the good fight to outright insubordination. So I remember reading Mike's chapter and just being blown away, uh, and then having to myself think about okay, well, where is that line? When does one cross it? When is the right time to do it? Uh, And when is the wrong time to do it? And I think, you know, that there's got to be that fine line between breaking the rules because it's the right thing to do uh, and outright insubordination, which I think clearly none of us support.
1: Do you want to talk, uh, Brian, a little bit more about the example that you were pointing out and uh tell tell our listeners about it?
0: Yeah, so uh I happened to come across uh someone shared yesterday that uh October Uh, 25th 1925, was the beginning of the court-martial trial of uh, Colonel Billy Mitchell. Uh, Billy Mitchell, an icon in the Air Force, and what had happened was the U.S. Navy uh, had an airship that crashed, uh, leading to loss of life of Navy service members, uh, and Mitchell uh, spent the evening composing a A letter that he wanted published in the papers uh, and in that letter. And then when he called the the press into his office that day, uh, he essentially used the words uh, treasonous uh, running of the U.S. military. uh, And he used several other phrases. But but essentially what he did uh, was as a colonel was attack not only the U.S. Navy, who he blamed for the Shenandoah incident, but also the U.S. Army, who were his superiors. So here is an 06 uh, lambasting the running of the, you know, at the time, the Defense Department uh, and saying that they didn't know how to run things, that airmen feared for their lives, that they knew if they continued to fly under the U.S. Army or the U.S. Navy, they were going to die. And he was he was brought before court-martial. Now, another interesting aspect of this, which most people don't realize uh is that he writes a letter to his wife at the exact same time uh because billy mitchell has a book coming out wing defense one of kind of the premier texts on air force history Uh, and he writes his wife uh right after he makes the statements that says now they're going to pay attention and this is going to help us sell books and i've always thought well now wait a minute now you were the one who were using dead servicemen uh to promote your own work and i've always really had a problem with that
1: so also in discussion of the military as a profession, in a few of the chapters, there's some wrestling with what does it mean to be a profession? And when when thinking about ethics of a profession, who is the professional responsible to? And some of your contributors come to different conclusions about uh, whether you would put someone in the military in the same category as other kind of easily recognizable professions that have ethical codes and obligations to either a client or a a person that they serve in that profession. Can you talk a little bit about some of the different conclusions that the contributors came to and what that debate uh, adds to the discussion about the state of the military now?
0: Nate, if you're okay, do you mind if I start on this one? No, feel free. Yeah. So, uh, again, uh, in in my own chapter, I kind of broke professionalism in the Air Force up into three or four different sections. And I felt that while they were all clearly um, professional military members aiming towards the same goal, the way they went about it was quite different. Uh, so in the Air Force writ large, I kind of divided it up and said that, hey, you've got uh, your traditional operator force, which are your 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 pilots and I kind of included in there be they fighter pilot, bomber pilot, or, or cargo pilot, uh, I kind of felt that they went about doing things in a certain way. Uh, and that's a little bit of that Billy Mitchell maverickism that I talk about, you know, that you're going to do what's right, even if you kind of don't like the way that the service is, is leading you. Uh, I said that there were the the space and missile, space and missile uh, professionals, and I felt that that's kind of the vestiges of the old Strategic Air Command, uh, very checklist dominated. uh, And if it does not come in the checklist, then we will not do it and we will not air right or left from this checklist. Uh, I also said that I felt that the Unmanned aerial vehicle, the drone professional was kind of coming into its own, uh, and then I also said that there were the support professionals uh, who kind of had to go about things in their own own way uh, because they were not those those operators. You know, I hate to use the, the phrase, but on the the pointy end of the spear. Uh, so I kind of said that even in the Air Force as a professional organization, there were three or four various ways that I considered them to be professionals.
2: Yeah, so uh, Brian makes some good points in uh, particular to the Air Force on kind of a a broader level, Uh, most of the services, particularly the Army, I think, uh, kind of focus on themselves and and who is a professional based on the foundational work by by Huntington and Janowitz and Huntington in particular. Um, And uh, what they kind of believe is that professions provide a vital service to society uh, and society is their client. Uh, in the U.S. military, um, that focus is less on society as people and more as a country. So we actually give our oath of office to the Constitution and support and defend the Constitution, which is the foundation of our society. Um Additionally, professions uh, work within the jurisdiction that they're given. So in our case, it's the application of lethal force uh, on behalf of uh, the US um, and that we are able to self-regulate. So we have the uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice where we have certain laws and regulations that uh, we self-regulate both bad and good behavior uh, within the profession Um, that we are able to earn and maintain trust with our client. So the American people through the constitution, um, and that we are given some autonomy, uh, to do, uh, what we need to do, what society has charged us to do. Um, and of course we have, uh, a a lot of good chapters, as you mentioned, there's, um, that question is pretty much the theme that goes throughout all of our chapters. Um, in particular, uh, there's a large focus on, um, the use of doctrine and regulation um, to kind of guide the profession. Uh, That's by Stephen Foster in Chapter 10. Um, There's also... Uh, chapter on mentorship so uh, in the military like I mentioned earlier there's kind of like a journeyman process it's a a career that you do throughout uh, uh, throughout your professional time Um, and part of that is guided by mentorship and people both of peers who have knowledge uh, more than you as well as superiors are helping guide you through that and uh, Ray Kimball in chapter 9 really takes on that kind of mentorship aspect uh, of the profession and and what that means and then uh, I think the main chapter that you're kind of thinking is probably chapter five, which is uh, Tony Ingeson, uh, our Scandinavian friend, uh, who, who talks about uh, when the military profession isn't. So he tries to parse out who's a, who is a professional and who's not, uh, really kind of focused on those core principles uh, that I talked about earlier. So, you know, maybe um, the folks who are just providing a service to other uh, military members um, aren't professionals. And, and Tony doesn't weigh in one way or the other. He just kind of lays out a framework. Um, whereas the folks who are at the so-called pointy end of the spear, the ones who are actually doing that service for the American people, uh, whether they're the real professionals or not. So that's, uh, again, that also is a pretty provocative chapter uh, tied together with uh, Mike Denny's.
1: And how is that debate helpful? Is that, is that um, aiming to look at the ethical accountability or how does talking about who falls into these different categories helpful for the military from a strategic standpoint?
2: I'd say it's helpful in two ways. Um, One is institutional. Um, So if you better understand Uh, who your people are, what their role is and what you need them to do within the profession. Um, you can then build the systems around them to, to kind of create that product, so to speak, hate to hate to call individuals product, but essentially create those individuals and those leaders you need. So if some people are, um, in the case of, uh, Tony's framework, if some, uh, Career fields in the military or functions in the military um, aren't necessarily part of the quote-unquote profession. They're focused on enabling the profession then maybe you would educate, resource, um, and provide experiences to those differently than you would those so-called quote-unquote professionals uh, who are doing that service to, on behalf of the nation at the point of the end of the spirit. And they would be focused on a different um, education and experience track. So that's, you know, institutionally, that's maybe one way that conversation is useful. Um, more importantly, and then I think this is why uh, the Army in particular, but I think service as a whole, are looking at all of their service members as professionals, is understanding what the profession is and people's role in it allows you to uh, create areas of authority and responsibility um, and buy-in in the people who are coming into the military. So it's a little bit of, a, uh, in a positive way, a little bit of indoctrination to create those professionals so that they're doing the ethical and professional things that you need them to be doing.
0: And I think uh, I'll bring up Pauline Cenk's current chapter here. Uh, Again, one of my favorites in the book and uh, one of my favorite people to interact with on social media. Uh, But when you think about what it truly means to be a professional and she lays out that body of expert knowledge, Uh, that we are accorded, professionals are accorded a certain amount of privileges uh, in exchange for uh, the fact that the profession will self-regulate, as Nate mentioned, uh, and that at the end of the day, the profession operates for the common or the public good. Uh, And so I think these are questions that I know I struggle with, uh, even as a a separate what I might call professional historian. Uh, But as I relate them to those in the military, uh, these are questions I actually spend some time thinking about.
1: So going back to a point that Nate made uh, a couple minutes ago about trust, several authors bring up the importance of trust between the military and citizens. And interestingly, in the conclusion, it says fewer members of society have a personal connection with the military or exposure to conflict in a meaningful way. Can you talk more about that statement and the importance of, of the trust between the military and citizens and that connection?
2: Absolutely. So one of the core tenets of being a profession is that uh, you have a sense of trust with your client. Your client trusts you to do the things they are charging you to do. They're giving you the autonomy to do. Um, And in order to gain that trust, you have to show them that you're capable of doing it and doing it in an ethical uh, and efficacious manner. And the more that our society is separating the military and their day-to-day life and the things that they do uh, from society, uh, the more possibly the more challenging, at least the the postulation that a lot of people discuss, uh, particularly in op-eds, is uh, that the harder it is to build that trust. Um, We have... Large bases in the United States with a, a professional military that most, a good portion of them are, are career soldiers who spend most of their time on bases or deployed or, or doing things. And, and the only time they really interact with the community around them is, is when they're out with their family, you know, shopping, eating, eating dinner, that kind of thing. Um, and typically the, uh, the direction that we get from society comes through the Department of Defense and our elected leaders telling us what to do. So there's a bit of a filter there. Um, And as less and less people as a proportion of society are actually serving in uniform, the less they understand what it is like to be in uniform, what it is like to fight a war. Um, Additionally, the more that we keep going back to the same well types of people, families that serve in the military, the less maybe they have a connection to civil life and understand what it's like to not be in the military. And so we as professionals Have to spend, should be spending a a portion of our time ensuring that we are interacting with society as a whole, that we're communicating what we do, whether as an institution or as an individual, uh, so that people understand what it is we provide to society, um, that we are professional, show them how we're professional, and honestly, and probably most importantly, that we are effective at what we do when society asks us to go do what we are charged to do, which is the application or the threat or application of force on behalf of the state. Um, And if we do not do that effectively, then we lose credibility and trust uh, with society. Um, Anyway, Brian, you got any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think what I wanted to add to that is as the civil-military divide grows, Uh, Nate talked a little bit about how, you know, military professionals tend to interact with each other, tend to hang around with each other uh, and their families. And I think to a greater extent, uh, it's even generational. Uh, You know, maybe soldiers begat soldiers, airmen begat airmen. uh, And it's I don't want to say self-fulfilling prophecy, um, but uh, it is it is certainly something to consider in the civil military divide. And, And when you look at. I don't want to use the phrase on a pedestal, uh, but it's become, I think, dangerously close to that. The way that the um, uh, civilian side holds up the military uh, and, you know, we can look at the discussions on uh, representation of the military at NFL games or baseball games or any other sporting events. Uh, But I do think that when the profession fails, uh, when there is a failure of that trust, that is a big deal. Uh, And we can probably come up with dozens, if not hundreds of examples, probably just in the last decade, uh, you know, cheating scandals at academies, cheating scandals in the missile career field, uh, a general officer who does not live up to his ethical obligations. Uh, This impacts uh, the government's and the public perception of what the professional is and how how he or she does, uh, their business. Uh, and so I, I think it's a, it's important to recognize that when there's a breach of that trust, uh, there is a visceral reaction to that breach of trust.
1: Brian, did you want to, to expand on that, uh, story you tell in your chapter about the missile corps?
0: Yeah. And so that's just, you know, one example among many, I think if I remember correctly, I pointed out three different examples, uh, in my chapter uh, one was the grounding of the F-22 fleet, uh, and this was circa 2012-2013. Uh, there was an issue uh, with uh, what was believed to be the the oxygen generating system on the aircraft. Uh, in reality, it was it was the harness. It was the way the pilots were were dressed. Um, but the F-22 fleet was grounded, and so uh, the pilots of the F-22s. We're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, look, these these are very um, very motivated individuals. They wanted to go out and fly their aircraft. They wanted to go out and be fighter pilots, uh, but at the same time, uh, there was significant worry about uh, the jet itself. Uh, so trying to balance that desire to go and be the professionals, you know, do what society expects them to do, which is be pilots. Ah, uh, but at the same time, worried about their their safety and how their family was going to react. So that was one of the case studies I looked at. The other one that you mentioned uh, is the missile career field, and I said that the missile career field uh, was the vestige of that strategic air command. Uh, and by that, if you if you've ever looked at the way SAC did their business. It was very checklist oriented uh and you ran the checklist, you ran the checklist twice uh and there had to be perfection uh and this went over into into how we tested uh our missile operators. There had to be perfection it had to be a hundred percent every time uh and this led to uh, a cheating scandal where answers were being passed around uh, inside missile squadrons. Uh, a lot of squadron commanders and group commanders uh, were relieved of command after this. Uh, but I said that really what the missile career field needed to do uh, was go back and rely on that, that strategic air command mentality, go back to the checklist, uh, go back to doing the right thing uh, to kind of, you know, I also hate to use the phrase, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, but, uh, but you know, when you're dealing with the one of the pieces of the nuclear triad, you know, you kind of expect perf- uh, perfection.
1: And I wanted to go back to to a point that you brought up about um, how the military is viewed in society. There's some discussion, even just historically, about the abstraction of military service and how society has created a partition between a war and the warrior. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about, those concepts, and how that affects the relationship between military and society?
0: So I think what we typically go back to uh, is the perception of the soldier returning from Vietnam – Uh, And uh, the the concept, the idea, the actuality of soldiers returning home, not being treated well by society. And of course, you know, go from 1968 forward, uh, uh, burning of draft cards, you know, really the the idea uh, that the, the military was doing something unjust, not right. Uh, and so there was all this perception uh, that the soldier was treated very poorly upon his return from Vietnam. And I am I am not by any stretch uh, saying one way or the other. There there, there are clearly examples of this. Uh, and there are clearly studies that show uh, that our our perceptions today might not be entirely correct. But what you have over the course of the the post Vietnam era, uh, and look, this includes things like music and film too. Uh, but over the course of the post Vietnam era through Desert Storm, where this shifted, where where the, the civil society said, we support the military, uh, we fully back the military. And it, it the pendulum has swung, uh, and I think we're having these discussions today, has swung entirely in the other direction, where the military is now, to a certain extent, put up on a pedestal. And I think there uh, are military professionals uh who, if they don't have a problem with this, they're, they're certainly concerned that we, we've swung too far in the other direction. And, and I'm not saying that that this is right or this is wrong, uh, but this is certainly something that inside the military and inside social media spheres uh, we are discussing today is, is how much support, how much unvarnished glory is, is too much. Nate, do you have anything to add to that as I kind of flail around here?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I, I always – whenever this question is asked or, or this discussion comes up, I always go back to working for a general officer years ago uh, who had served in Vietnam, at least the Vietnam era, um, towards the end of the war. <clears throat> and um, him describing how he would have to ensure that he didn't wear his uniform off post, that he would wear a baseball cap to cover his short haircut, that he would um, – and, and even it, even when he would do those things, there were times when people would approach him, though he's a soldier and, and, and um, give him trouble, whether it's that spitting on him or yelling at him. Um, and so this was a guy that that I was serving with, right. So he was towards the end of his career, uh, GL, I was a, a junior officer. Um, but hearing those stories, um, and then having the almost opposite experience myself, uh, where when I flew off to Iraq, I landed a couple of places in the United States. Um on our way there right one uh, bangor maine being one of them and we got off the plane and all our gear to, to kind of take a break and, and wait for them to refuel the plane and it's two in the morning and there's 20 you know people from maine at the airport you know clapping at us, shaking our hands giving us snacks um and having the same experience when i'm flying back from Rockland landing in dallas and having literally 100 people um cheering us as we're coming off the plane to, to change flights um and during, you know, having those conversations with senior leaders who saw the opposite and, and me seeing another, um, you really get a, this cognitive dissonance of, of how much um, it has changed and how I think as as a nation, our psyche uh, looks back on Vietnam and it is somewhat ashamed at the way as a society, maybe not individuals, but but as a society, it was a sh- how, how shame we felt the way we treated Vietnam veterans. Um, and as Brian mentioned, that has almost swung to the other end where it's we um, as a society kind of, as you mentioned, Beth, kind of split between the war and the and the warrior, right? We. Want to support the soldier, support the airman, support the the, the sailor, um, no matter what they do. You know, not going into the ethical, uh, illegal things, but support them and know what they do because they're just out there doing what we ask them to do, um, and that is certainly good. I would prefer that, and I think that's better for society than than it is the opposite, uh, the way that it was uh, at the end of Vietnam. Um, but we have to be very careful that both society doesn't put soldiers. Uh, and other service members on a pedestal to the point where everyone's a hero and they can't do anything wrong because we, we know that's obviously false and that could lead to allowing the military to do things that are unethical or illegal uh, and and getting away with it and, and shaping the military in a bad way. Additionally, and more uh, concerning to me as a serving member um, in, in a pool of many, many veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the danger of... Veterans and serving members viewing themselves as separate and apart from society and uh, are being owed things uh, just because they put on the uniform. Um, And so there's this fine balance between understanding that that service members um, volunteer to serve the state and they should be given some sort of credence for that without putting them on a pedestal or giving them the impression that they they deserve things uh, above and beyond other uh, citizens.
1: I wanted to to touch back to Brian's chapter on the Air Force, where he discusses a service that experiences silos based on in part because they're performing distinct functions. Could you talk about that and are there lessons that other services can learn in light of increased specialization in driven by technology and, and other factors?
0: Yeah, you're making me go back and, and pick the book up and open open the chapter up here. Uh, but the Air Force has long struggled with an identity crisis uh, in that – You know, you've got your your pilots uh, and even amongst pilots, there is stratification. Uh, You've got your your space career field, which I think we could all agree is probably getting uh, much more attention in the last six months than they have in in the last uh, six years to a decade. Uh, You have your your support career fields. And and I will say this. I'll go back to my time at at the Air Command and Staff College uh, where I dealt with uh, an army officer. Uh, she was a personnelist, uh, but she was also uh, an airborne and air assault qualified uh, personnelist who spoke about, you know, dropping into drop zones with with her troops. Uh, and that is not something that you would necessarily experience as a personnelist in the Air Force. Uh, and so while I think every service probably has their dominant career field, uh, I think the Air Force has has long struggled with how to balance uh, what has been the, the dominant career field at least since uh, the early 80s of the fighter pilot uh, uh, against educating and training and, and recognizing uh, professionalism in the, uh, the other career fields inside the Air Force. So, you know, in my time in the Air Force, a, a short six years, there was all this discussion about breaking down stovepipes. Uh, but what I talk about in the chapter is, hey, these stovepipes work uh, and maybe they are not necessarily uh, a bad thing. Uh, and I just want to go back very quickly To the idea of of the identity crisis uh, in the Air Force. Uh, The Air Air Force recognizes its birthday in September of 1947. Uh, I personally don't think that's necessarily correct. I think that obfuscates and ignores a lot of the Air Force's history uh, that occurs before that date. Uh, fighter, bomber, cargo squadrons all trace their uh, lineage and history and heritage back to uh, World War II and some of them even to World War One and pre-World War I. Uh, so I've often looked at that as the, the Declaration of Independence Day uh, for the Air Force. And not necessarily that birthday. But again, uh and something that I, I did write in the book and something that the Air Force I think needs needs to recognize is, is we focus on innovation, uh, is that the Air Force is a service that is born as much of insubordination uh as it's born of innovation.
1: Nate, did you have anything you wanted to add?
2: Uh yes, so I won't add anything specific to uh Brian's chapter because um he has ably covered it. Obviously uh, fantastic chapter that uh, I'm really glad we brought in, uh, the aspects of insubordination as a, a piece of the culture, I think really adds to the book, uh, and is, is woven throughout, uh, as, uh, Brian mentioned, um, but what I will mention is there are th- three really good chapters that we, we have not really touched on. Um, one is by Holly Houston that's focused on non-military members on the battlefield and how actually they weave into the profession and they should be considered in the profession, and that is aid workers. So those civilians on the battlefield, are enabling soldiers that are helping uh, the local populace. Uh, and how they have a lot of the same experiences and a lot of the same kind of foundation of a military profession uh, that military professionals do. Um, another one is by Casey Landrew, who's really focused on um, the history of the Army as a profession and how the focus on values is important. So, um, Brian mentions the insubordination slash innovation piece of the culture in the uh, Air Force. Well, in the Army, there's a, a large focus on um, mission command, following of uh, commander's intent uh, and values uh, that really drives the culture that's in the Army. Um, and the last piece is by Australian author uh, Joe Brick. Uh, she's a, a lawyer in the Australian Air Force. Uh, long-time contributor at the Strategy Bridge, and she focuses on um, the role of law uh, in the profession. Um, and so all three of those chapters, again, they touch on a lot of the same issues of what the role of the profession is, how ethics plays, uh, and the cultural culture of the services. So I want to make sure uh, I, I ably cover them as well.
1: Well, thank you. And we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, could you tell us a little bit about how the book launch is going? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the book officially
2: came out on 15 October, but we were, uh, Ty and myself were lucky enough to be out at the uh, Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas on 9 October uh, where we gave a talk on the book and did a, our first book signing. Um, so that was uh, that was a lot of fun, uh, well attended, including by cadets there uh, at the ROTC programs at uh, the University of Kansas. Um, Ty and I have a second uh, iteration of this. We'll be speaking uh, at the Pritzker Military uh, Museum and Library in Chicago on 6 November um, and doing a book signing after. And then all of our um, contributors uh, have been great uh, and started jumping on uh, podcasts and interviews uh, similar to this one. Um, and so um, they've been uh, pushing out the book to, the best that they can across the world, including uh, podcasts in Australia. Um, all of that uh, information can be found at modernmilitarybook.com, which is a website just kind of collates all of the uh, activities of our great contributors, uh, as well as uh, tell people where they can uh, buy the book.
1: Great. Thank you both for being on the show today and discussing your, your chapters, your contributions, and your experiences.
2: Thanks for having us, Beth. Yeah, I really appreciate it.
1: Redefining the Modern Military, edited by Nathan Finney and Tyrell Mayfield, is available now from Naval Institute Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.